0: And thank you, Praise Team. Sounded wonderful today. Moving my heart towards worship and preparing for our text this morning. Didn't they do a great job this morning? Great job, guys, as always. Uh, let me take this off so I can breathe. All right. Y'all remember back in the 80s when Hulk Hogan would wrestle and he'd do that funny face where he was gasping for air? That's what I feel like. Every time I take those masks off, just gasping for air, you know. Alright, if you're here with us for the first time, or the first time in a long time, we, what's it? Uh, yeah, be, give me a room temperature one though because it's better for the old vocal cords if that's okay. Uh, the uh, a, a musician taught me that once, that if, you're, if you have to speak or sing, cold water will constrict your vocal cords and if you will use room temperature water, it's not as constricting, so. All right, uh, before we begin here, I just want to say thanks to all the men that came out for our prayer breakfast yesterday. I uh, had a good turnout, 20 to 20 30 men. I didn't get an exact count. Um, and uh, we're going to have another one of those on the 13th. And we spent, uh, I only spoke for like five minutes, which I know is hard for you to believe, but I did. I only spoke for about five minutes. And then uh, we dealt with... Uh, Integrity. Next month, we're just going to talk about connecting with God in prayer. And we spent a good amount of time just in prayer. And I got to say, for me personally, that was so encouraging just to hear the men of our church just praying for the things here. We prayed for the preaching ministry, prayed for the singing ministry, we prayed for our small group ministry. We had a top 10 thing we went through and prayed for, and it was just uplifting. To, to pray. Uh, so it's it's food fundamentals and fellowship and prayer. That's what we do. So if you can make the next one, mark it down now on the 13th, 8 a.m. in the fellowship hall. And the biscuits aren't a bad little deal either. So every man I've ever met, met loves breakfast, right? I mean, they just love, I thought one day I'm going to start me a, an old car or a Jeep club and call it uh, grease and gravy, where we're going to, you know, have biscuits and gravy and talk about our favorite greasy rides, right? old greasy rides. But anyway, All right, Luke 4, 14 through 30, the ministry of Jesus. It's a very original title. It comes right from the text. It's very hard to produce a new title for a sermon each week. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but you do it 52 times a year. Your creative juices run low. So sometimes I just borrow from the text. And so this is the text here. I was tempted to call this sermon uh, a prophet without honor or... Unwanted in his hometown, because this is all in this text today. Uh, a few things here to just refresh us since Jerry preached last week, and he did a good job for us. We have been in Luke chapter 4, and we, ha- we are coming out of Jesus's temptation 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, just to refresh your mind, we're seeing here Jesus's ministry being launched. He is a new Adam. In the Old Testament, the first man that was made, the first Adam, was in a perfect Garden. All his needs and wants that he could ever think of were supplied. But he was only tempted once, him and his wife Eve, and they fell. And when they fell, we all fell. And so he he wasn't able to make it in the perfect situation. Jesus here In not a perfect situation, he's in the wilderness and he is tempted three times with things that Satan chose in his craftiness that no doubt he must have known were appealing to him and his flesh at some level. And yet Jesus conquers those sins and those temptations and refuses to sin, right? What is sin? It's the breaking of any of God's laws. It is anything that will break God's heart. And so Jesus will not engage and do that. And, and here he is in chapter 4, and he's coming out of the wilderness. God leads him into Galilee, into his hometown. Okay, this is the very beginning of his ministry. He's going to kick this thing off at his hometown. Now, a few things I want to tell you about Galilee before we get into it. First of all, we've got to go back in the Old Testament to understand the situation that Galilee is in. Galilee was considered part of what was the northern kingdom when Israel split in the Old Testament. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was rash and, and quick in his judgment. Instead of leaning on the wisdom of his father and, and doing what God would have him do and listening to the northern kingdom and loving them like he should have, he became harsh and hard with them. And so the northern kingdom said, fine, we're done, we're leaving. And the kingdom split, two tribes or so in the south and the rest in the north. Okay. And uh, and Galilee fell in the northern kingdom. Some of the things that happened here in the northern kingdom, they set up their own holidays, separate and different from those in southern Judah. They set up their own places to worship, right? You really don't see, like in the heyday of Israel, You don't see synagogues, like plural. You see like one place. Like when they came out of Egypt, there was a central place that they went to worship there in the middle of the camp, right? That's where they offer their sacrifice and offerings. There's not synagogues, plural. There's one place that they go. And in the Old Testament, up until the kingdom splits, there's one place they go to worship. That's Jerusalem. Solomon builds the temple. Solomon's temple, overlaid in gold and beautiful. Everybody goes there to bring their offerings. But when the kingdom splits. This is where we see the development of these synagogues and they become more popular as they become invaded and ruled by others. It's actually not even a Hebrew word. Synagogue is really a Greek word, right? It's it's not even Hebrew. So the the word here just indicates the gathering place where they went to worship. So what's the deal with the northern kingdom? Well, as I've told you before, most of the time, if you were to list a king of Israel, they were bad, (laughs) Uh, I would say probably the worst kings that are in the Old Testament are found in the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is marked with a mixed worship. They are marked by unbelief and they are marked by bowing to other altars and gods as well. Uh, Now, don't think the South was always good. They have their moments where they didn't do as well either. But even in the midst of the Northern Kingdom, being marked with unbelief, being marked with mixed worship... God is faithful and sends prophets to preach to them. Now, how do you think they receive most of those prophets? Not well. There's always a few that believe, but the majority of people that are in the northern kingdom reject the prophets that God sends. And he always sends them with the same message, right? Repent of your sin, turn to the Lord. But because of their unbelief, because of their mixed worship, they won't do it. And so with that in mind... That's the setting for Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up. This is where Jesus reads these passages here. And here is what the Word of God says. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now let me say a couple things about this because this is different than how we worship right now. In ancient Judaism, most people... ...didn't have Bible scrolls or text, okay? You're very blessed and fortunate because you have access to paper Bibles, right? If you don't have one, you want one, see me afterwards, we got a stack, me or Danny will get you one, you can have it. If you don't even have that and you're not, you don't want that, you got a smartphone, you can access Bible Gateway, have any English translation of the Bible you want. You got access to it everywhere, okay? In the Old Testament times, the, everything was copied by hand, like, you, you know, at this point in history... The, the Gutenberg Press has not been invented. And so they had to use leather scrolls, and it was time staking. These scrolls were very expensive. You can actually go to Jerusalem today, and you can find where a scribe has messed up an Old Testament scroll, an, an Old Old Testament scroll, and you can purchase them. But do you know how much a messed up scroll is? It's about a thousand bucks is the cheapest. They go from a thousand all the way up to seven, eight, nine thousand dollars. That's for one that's blemished and messed up. And you know that when you buy it. Imagine what a perfect one without blemish is going to cost and run in modern day, you know, money and in and ancient money as well. So it says here, they bring out the scroll. So you would have these guys, these attendants, their job was to make sure the scrolls stayed locked up, that they were, you know, brought out for worship. Taken care of properly while worship, then when you get done, you would hand the scroll back to the attendant, and they would go and make sure they were put away, so nobody could steal them or take them away or sell them or whatever. So you had somebody that was their that was their job in the synagogue was to maintain the word of God. Moving on, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Now, something else is different here in the Old Testament worship than it is in ours. Uh, one of the reasons that he sits down is because that's what the rabbis did. And, and this at this point in history, the way the congregation and church worked was the, the prophet or the rabbi, the teacher, would stand to read the scripture whenever he was done with that. He would sit down, and everybody else would have to stand up. Do you, Danny, do you think we need to go back to that? Where are you at? Maybe we ought to take all the chairs out, and I have a chair up here. You guys can buy me a nice golden chair like they have on CBN. What do you think? I can sit. No, no takers on that. Pray about it, all right? It says here, spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said to them, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtlessly, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Calpurnium, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. That's one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. This is one of the, want to talk about dropping names of great men. This is one of the great men of the Old Testament. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, not even Nahum the Syrian, but only Naam the Syrian. When, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff." Understand here, beloved, they intend to kill him. They're going, they want to throw him off a ledge to when he lands, he will not survive from the injuries he sustains. That is their intent and goal. But passing through their midst, he went away. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word, and I pray he writes this truth on our hearts this morning. Before I lead in here. I want to just spend one moment in prayer to help us today because this is a text for churchgoers. Okay? This is for people who are faithful churchgoers. Jesus here is preaching to churchgoers in his day. And to be quite honest, he's preaching to us. And I'm putting myself down in a chair with you or on a couch with you this morning when I say that as a faithful churchgoer. So let's just pray for just a minute here that we can see what God wants us to see. So why don't you just bow your head with me and pray before we begin looking at this text closely. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its truth. We sense that you are uniquely speaking to us. Jesus, in this passage, you're speaking to churchgoers. You you are speaking in this passage to people who think of themselves as moral, as upright not like the heathen world around them, to believing people, godly people, people that go to church every week. And yet, you are speaking to them about their sins and their disbelief, their unbelief. And so we feel, Lord, as if you have us in your bullseye this morning. Lord, we need to recognize when we're in your bullseye because you never have in view in your words of conviction, just the purpose of hurting us. Your convicting words are always designed to turn us from folly and to help us to flee to Christ and to grace. So, Lord, instead of self-protecting this morning, instead of blame-shifting, instead of denial, instead of indifference, instead of boredom, Lord, shake us to the core out of our spiritual slumber to your word today and open our eyes to see ourselves, our sin, our sin, our plight in this world, and our Savior. Lord God, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What would happen if Jesus Christ took the pulpit here and preached in a common ground service at Grace Baptist Church? What would be the reaction of us? How would we receive him? How would you respond if Christ were standing here instead of me, right? Don't make the mistake. I'm not Christ. Far from it. I'm a glorified mailman. I just deliver what the Lord has already given. But what if he was here this morning? You know, he stands in the synagogue some 2,000 years ago. And he preaches and teaches these people. His hometown, the church he went to. Look what it says there in that opening verse. In verse 14. Can you rewind that for me back there to verse 14? Jesus returned to the to in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding counties. Sorry, it's in verse 15, my mistake. Uh, Taught in the synagogues, bring glory to all. I I guess it's in sixteen. Go one more. Came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and look here. As was his what? Custom. He went to the Sabbath. They went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went to the center of worship on the Sabbath day. There is built in the Bible and in the lives of people a rhythm for worship and rest. That is God's formula. That's the way He made us from the beginning. And Jesus here committed to this custom, this custom of coming together with with God's people to worship. Right? He he wasn't going to miss that. Right? Even in an area. That, you know, worship had been messed up. There had been a lot of rejection over the years. Still was going to be faithful, right? In, in being together with the family. We hear, a, we hear echoed in these words, the warning from Hebrews. Don't forsake the gathering together of one another, right? Make it your custom. Make it your practice. Emulate Jesus here. Do as he did. Gather with the people on the Sabbath day and worship, right? But back to this question. Jesus were to preach here, what would the response be? How would his deeds and his wonders be received? Would we receive him well? This this passage here, we are seeing a response to what happens when Jesus shows up. And let me say this. Jesus has shown up to preach here at Grace Baptist Church. It's not me. It's this. It's in the Word of God. Jesus comes through the Word of God, and He is here. This is why the Word of God is central to all we do. This is why we stay close to it, to see and understand who He is. And what I want to draw your attention to this morning is several things that Jesus says here. Things that He says about Himself in this passage. Things that He says about sin and need. And things that He says in this passage about good news. All right. And I want to believe that we would receive Christ well. Better, at least, than the crowd that gathered that morning. You know, as preachers, we never know how our messages are going to hit people. I remember my mentoring pastor in an interview I did with him once. And he said, I often wondered when I would preach a text, what will God do with that message in this person or that person or this person? And I heard of a pastor one time. He said... uh, he said that people were coming out the door. And if you've ever said this to me, I don't remember it. So you don't feel bad if you've said this to me before. But I'm going to tell you a common thing people say to preachers after they preach a sermon. And, and then I'm going to tell you what we really think about it after I'm done telling you that. And somebody shook the preacher's hand and said, man, preacher, you really stomped on my toes this morning. You stomped all over my toes. And the preacher looked at that person and said, you know, that's really too bad because I was aiming for your heart. See? The reality of it is this. When the Word of God is preached, our hope is not to make you feel uncomfortable about some behaviors that you had in the week to the point where you'll grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up and do a little better next week. That's not the point of preaching. The point of preaching is that you would see Christ so clearly, that you would understand what the gospel is, that it would propel you to worship Him at a greater level, and that you would be transformed out of joy and love for your Savior. That's the goal of preaching, not do better next week, right? That's a big difference, isn't it? And, and here is what, and you know, if, you're, if you make Christ the center of your life and you're doing that, you will do better next week as a byproduct of that, right? But that's the goal here is to aim at the heart. And what we're going to see Jesus doing here is he's going to hit the bullseye of the heart of the people of Galilee. He's going to hit them right where they need to be hit. Right smack in the middle of that bullseye, right? Um, so let's, let's look at this here. Let's see this here. This message to the Nazarenes, these well-scrubbed, church-going folks here. Jesus is preaching to them. You know, this gra- crowd is gathered there. Let me say something about that just a minute. Just because there's a crowd doesn't always mean the crowd is gathering for the right reasons. What we're going to see unfold here is the people of Galilee, the people of Nazareth. They're showing up for a show. They want, they've heard of this Jesus who has done miracles, right? They want to see him do something here. I mean, he's one of us, right? He's one of our boys. He ought to be able to do something here. If he's doing stuff out in Calpurnia, he ought to come back here to Nazareth and do at least double what he does out there. We should be the first recipients of a double portion here of what God is doing, if that's truly what it is. It's not really here for them about understanding Jesus as he claims himself to be. It's not about their sins being forgiven. It's about good health care, basically, right? Really good health care. And he goes on here. And let's look at this, what, what Jesus is teaching about himself, right? Let me draw your attention first and foremost to that. Jesus' self-identification here in these passages. Look here at verse 17. Jesus unrolls the scroll here, and he's reading here. You you need to go home today and read Isaiah 61. That's what he's reading from in the Old Testament. And he's going to read verses 1 and 2 from Isaiah 61. Uh, By the way, I don't know if you've ever seen a a text of Hebrew or of Greek, you know, from antiquity. Some of these old texts. But... um, I took several years of Greek and Hebrew. I can't read them. I have to have the editing. Like, I can't even read what's edited well either. I have to have help with that. But if you can imagine, those scrolls, they're not numbered, right? There's no chapter numbers. That didn't come to sometime later. There's not verses, not verse numbers here. Uh, And all of the letters are capitalized with no spaces in between. So if you can imagine a newspaper in English... Where every letter is capitalized and they're all right next to each other and there's no spaces between them, that's what ancient Greek and Hebrew looks like. Okay? Would that be hard for you to read? (laughs) Yeah, it'd be hard, right? Well, here Jesus picks up the scroll. He knows exactly where to go. How hard would it be to find, you know, if there's no paragraph breaks, how hard would it be to find a place in a paragraph? It'd be hard. What? Jesus goes right where he wants to go. Easy for him, right? Hard for anybody else. Handing him the scroll and here he reads it. Now, look at, pay attention to these pronouns. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. He has sent me. Right? He reads all this, talks about the recovery of the sight for the blind. Set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you read these verses later today, which I encourage you to do, you will see that Jesus stops halfway halfway through the second verse there's actually a section of the scripture that talks about the vengeance of the lord and he doesn't read that part he just reads the first part and there's a reason for that i think the reason for that is jesus coming the first time and this is the beginning of his ministry the first time he's here it is a ministry of what liberating being sent by god giving sight to the blind who is he liberating from is it egypt no Who is it that he is is liberating them from? It's from their sins, from their self. You can feel the drama. This young man, this 30-something-year-old man, shows up in his hometown church, reads from this passage, huge significance to these people. You've got to remember, these people have a long history of having hopes in different leaders, and it failed, right? Right? Hope in King David, David dies. Hope in Solomon, brings in false gods, he dies. And then his son takes over, blows the whole kingdom in half. Then they're taken over by Babylonians. Then they're taken over by Persians. Now they're taken over by Romans. And a passage that every ancient Jew would have known in Jesus' day is they would have known Isaiah 61. They would have known it like modern churchgoers know John 3.16 because it is a verse that gives them hope a verse that, well, it's all amuck now. It was a muck with my ancestors, amuck with my parents. But when Messiah comes, he'll bring the delivery we're looking for, right? He's going to do it. I don't think any of them had in their mind when Jesus stepped to the podium and, and to read the text, nobody had in their mind that this was the Messiah. Nobody there was thinking that way, right? They knew it. They longed for release from this pagan, polytheistic government of the Romans. They wanted out of it. These filthy, uncircumcised Gentiles were in charge of their lands. They wanted rid of it. They wanted rid of them all. And what does he say when he steps to the podium here? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in front of you. Let that sit on you for just a minute. What is he saying? Jesus is saying here, people, I am the man God has sent to do this. I can set captives free. I can give sight to the blind. I can bring a relief to the oppressed. I can bring help to the poor. Jesus here is saying, I am the one. That God has anointed. I am the anointed one that's being spoken of here 600 years ago. It's me. And I've come here to do exactly what Isaiah 61 says. And that is deliver you from your sins. And these people are astonished. They're blown away. And look what they say. They all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that came out of mouth. But some of them started saying... Isn't this the carpenter's boy? I think he grew up with my kids. He went to Galilee High and Nazareth Elementary. I know this kid, right? Played on the playground with my kid. How could this guy be the Messiah? How is that possible, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know why this is the case, but this is always the case. We feel it here, right? I remember the day I graduated from East Tennessee State University. And I was not really... I was just excited it was over, to be honest, like that my four-year degree was over. That was what I was most excited about. I didn't really enjoy my time at East Tennessee State. I still get letters for them asking for my support, and I always throw them in the trash can because I'm not interested in sending support. Uh, you know, there was quite a bit of persecution of Christians at East Tennessee State when I was there. It was not a wonderful place to be a, an evangelical Christian that was a Bible believer, all right? I'm just being honest. But I remember there were people in Johnson City, Tennessee you got to remember, I've been in Johnson City for years and been to the mini dome growing up, you know, for different things in Washington County. They were so excited to be at East Tennessee State University and to be in Johnson City, Tennessee, and it was like foggy to me. I was like, have you people lost your mind? This is Johnson City. I mean, this is not, you know, we're not in Hawaii here, at the top of the mountain, right? I mean, they were acting like that's where they were. I don't know, maybe they were from Kansas or something. If you're from Kansas, I'm sorry, right? That's the most flat, awful land I've ever seen in my life. But uh, you know, they just act like they would never seen mountains before, never been anywhere like this before. Familiarity breeds contempt. It was contempt on my part. Right? I just wanted out and moving on. There's a similar kind of thing here. There's a contempt for the familiar. They knew him, knew him as a child growing up. Now, a 30 year old man. Like, yeah, this, is, this can't be the guy. This can't be the guy that Isaiah prophesied about. Not the guy that played with my kids when he was little. That's not him. It's not possible. There's a rejection of it just because it's familiar. And it plays out even now, you know. There is a, I believe, and and I'm not discouraging parents from doing this. Keep your kids in church and keep them with the church. There is a particular temptation that Satan gives those who were raised in the church. And the temptation is this. You've seen everything that the church has to offer. Look how familiar it all is to you. You don't need it. And they feel this pull to leave because of that, right? But friends, remember, far be it from us to ever say we know better what we need than God does. And God has always told us what? We need the body. We need the body and the body needs us. Is one part more important than the other? No. All need and all have a job. And all encourage and do ministry. So now what's the point here, right? Jesus here senses this this questioning, this doubting, this unbelief, and what does he say? Now there's interesting play here in the language of the Greek in chapter 4. In this language here, you will see in other New Testament writers and other gospel writers, they will use this phrase frequently. Truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you, Luke does not use that rhetoric often. You don't see Luke say that. So anytime Luke uses the term truly or amen, whatever he's going to pin right next to that, remember I've told you how he cut back on the essentials of what John the Baptist ministry was. Whatever's coming after truly is critical for you to get, right? And he says it here, right? In this verse, truly I say to you, no prophet is accompanied or is acceptable in his hometown. Now, what does that mean? What's that about? Remember what I said a minute ago about familiarity, breeding contempt. Let's move on to the next passage. He's going to tell you two stories, right? He tells you two stories of two monumentally important prophets in the Old Testament. One is Elijah and one is Elisha. Okay? These are two of the greatest prophets that ever lived in all of the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. In fact, Elijah was such a great prophet, the Bible records he never died. But that he was actually taken to heaven in chariots of fire. He was such a a godly prophet. Guess where they were sent? Do you know where their ministry was? Anyone guess? Based on the opening of the text, the opening of the sermon? The northern kingdom. They were sent to be faithful and preach the word of God to the northern kingdom. Guess how the northern kingdom received them? Not well, right? (laughs) They didn't want them, they didn't want their message. They rejected him. Uh, Elijah had to deal with King Ahab, who, you know, was described by the great preacher R.G. Lee as the most vile toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel, right? He rejected him. His wife Jezebel hated him so badly she set out to kill him. Uh, They they basically chased him out of town. And what's, what's irking the people here in Galilee and in Nazareth is this. Remember, they're wanting this blessing, this healing, this health care that Jesus can provide. And Jesus here is saying, just like in the Old Testament, right? When Elijah had a ministry, he could have ministered to all the widows in northern Israel. There's tons of them there, right? But because of their unbelief and their rebellion against God, he didn't minister to any of them. He didn't heal any of them. And he didn't bring any of, them, any of their sons back to life. You've got to remember, in those days, you had children. That was your social security plan. Your kids took care of you in your old age. If you didn't have kids and you were a widow, you were probably going to die soon unless the temple picked you up. Right? That was all you had to feed you and make sure you had shelter. And Elijah brings a widow's only son, her dead son, back to life. She, he does it for a pagan. Not for Israel. For a pagan woman. And then to make add insult to injury here, with Elijah this his predecessor that comes up, there is a general of an enemy army of Israel on their border who comes to him for healing from leprosy. Were there people in Israel who had leprosy and needed healing during that ministry? Absolutely. Did, did Elisha heal them? No, sir. Why? Unbelief and rejection of God's word. And they remain in their misery and in their sin. And here he heals an enemy, an enemy of God's people. And God is glorified through that. It begins to beg this question. How do you feel when God begins to work and move in the lives of people who are nothing like you? I've talked to a lot of different people here in Carter County. And I've tried to figure out who is our opposite, right? I think about as opposite as you can get from Carter County might be somebody from Al Qaeda that's from Iran. That's pretty opposite, isn't it? Somebody who has a Muslim background, raised a Muslim. Would it bother you if God said, Carter County, Grace Baptist Church, because of your unbelief, because of your rejection of the Scripture, I will no longer work in your midst. Instead, I will go to the people of Iran, and they will carry the torch of the gospel for me. that bother you? Can you start to feel what these Nazarenes were feeling as he's getting, you know, it says they, they got to the point of wrath, right? Sometimes there's people even in our own midst we don't like, right? Pastor, I'm happy if you give the gospel and reach people who are the same color as me and have the same number of tattoos or less than I do. To smell like I do and have the same social economic class than I do, does it bother you when God works in those people's lives as well and they come to Christ? Does it enrage you? Right. We're happy to send money to plant churches to reach those type of people, but we're good the way we are. One pastor was actually asked to leave a church here locally, uh, not too far from here, not in town. It was in this area northeast Tennessee. One of those deacons there said, we only need 30 people to keep this church running. That's it. Us 30 and no more. No interest in reaching those who were different, right? Suddenly, this homecoming meal of this 30-something pastor becomes a lynching mob. They're ready to kill him. Their, Their plans... To take him to the edge of town, where there's a nice big cliff there, to literally throw him off the cliff so that when he lands on the ground, he will, he will die. Why? Because instead of being convicted of their sin that Jesus had uncovered, right? He had pushed the button on this sin of unbelief and rejection. He is pushing that on the, on the center of their hearts, pointing to Elijah and Elisha. What do they decide to do? There's only two responses that normal people have. Now, if you're a sociopath or a psychopath, you won't, this won't apply to you. But everybody else, there's two responses to that button being pushed in people's hearts. You either respond in humility and in repentance, and you accept Christ and accept the gift of salvation, and you become healed from your sins, or you go into self-protection mode. That's the only two avenues you have. And the people of Nazareth here pick self protection over humility and repentance. That's what they pick. And so, what is their response here? I will protect myself. They're not going to admit what their hearts are truly like. They're not going to grapple with the unbelief that is in their heart and the lack of repentance for their sins. They're not going to allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show them what they're really like. Instead, They're going to get rid of the problem. And the problem here, the problem here is really their sin, but what they think is the problem is the one who's pointing out the sin. Not going to have anybody speaking truth into their lives. It should be the goal of every Christian that you have somebody regularly speaking truth into your life. You should have some accountability with brothers and sisters that you're kindred with here at the church, with your pastor, whoever, somebody. And you better submit to that when that's truth is spoken. Maybe you wouldn't grab Jesus today and take him out to the Butler Bridge and toss him down, right? Try to kill him. But if Jesus begins meddling in your heart and showing you your sin and trying to convict you of your sin, you're no different from the crowd that wants to kill him. No different. And here's a word for us here. Here's a word for us. You see, Jesus says here, he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. That must mean that there are some poor that need the good news. Poor in what? Poor in spirit. Dead in spirit. That meant there are some. There were some who were going to hear that message and be liberated. Not the majority, only some. That must mean that there are some good church-going folks that were spiritually blind. Some, not the majority, some. That must also mean that they were under the oppressive baggage of the world and the flesh and the devil, and they needed to be set free, and are we any different? There's a lot of people working really hard to believe that they're free and they're not actually free. Some people are so committed to acting as if they were free and really they're not. They're ready to kill people who will point and say, you're not free, you're under bondage. Now here's the good news. Jesus said he's come as the anointed one of the Lord to proclaim the good news. You may be sitting here and saying, Travis, I hear every word you're saying. Everybody around me we're too enamored with appearance. We're, we're, we are locked on to looking better than we actually are. We're whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside, dead inside. We're going to church and we're bowing at altars of money in the week or of looking good or of, or of having a certain uh, persona and personality we put in front of people, not letting anybody close in. Uh, We're, we're adulterers, Whenever between Sundays, but we're faithful to come to church. We bow at the altar of drugs. We like to be numbed from our emotions. We don't want to feel. We just want to exist and feel good. And we bow at those altars between Sundays, but there's good news this morning. You don't have to do that no more. Right? Christ is calling to you here in this passage. Come to me. Relish in who I am. The deliverer. To set you free from these. You know, us trying to handle our sins reminds me of something. Reminds me of Easter morning. You know, every mom likes to dress their kids up on Easter, right? Make them all look good and pretty. I want you to picture a five-year-old little boy in a brand new white pants, white vested suit, three-piece suit, okay? White, like Colonel Sanders white, Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, you know? She tells him, now, honey... We're going to leave for church in 40 minutes. Don't get dirty. You have to tell little boys that because little boys are drawn to church, or excuse me, drawn to dirt. Hopefully drawn to church too. They're drawn to dirt. They're made from dirt, and they want to play in dirt all the time. They like to get dirty and be dirty. It's just the nature of little boys, okay? You don't believe me? Come over to my house. I will show you. I will show you this truth. And he says, okay, Mom, okay. But he gets thirsty when she walks away. You know what really hits the spot on Sunday morning before church? Chocolate milk. He goes to the cupboard. He gets the Hershey syrup, opens it up, gets the milk, pours him a glass. I mean, he gets most of the chocolate in the glass, but he gets a good run of it right down the sleeve of his new coat, a new white coat. And he stirs it up, and he drinks most of the chocolate, but maybe a third of it goes down the front of that vest and that jacket. And then when he's done, he looks down, he sees the chocolate on his sleeve, and he sees the chocolate milk down the front of his nice white Easter suit. And what's he do? He runs to the bathroom, gets a washcloth, and he tries to wash it out, trying to remove it for his mom sees. But what's he doing by rubbing a washcloth on that chocolate in that white suit? What's he doing? Is he cleaning it, or is he making it worse? He's making it worse, isn't he? See, when we try to handle our sins on our own, and we go into self-protection mode, We're just like that five-year-old on Easter Sunday. We just make our sins worse as we try to deal with them on our own without the help of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we, we come to you humbly this morning. We needed this passage today. We needed you to speak to us today. Lord, help us to stop trying to clean up our messes on our own and instead turn to you. Lord, let let us see this morning there's only one thing that gets the stain of sin out and that's your blood. Blood that you came to give and to give freely. Lord, if there's anyone here today, they're done with appearances. They're ready to commit and admit to who they are. Admit how much they need you. Let's find grace that will never, never tarnish. Lord, you offer us freely today yourself. Lord, we can be guaranteed you will do the thing that you have said here in Isaiah and in this passage. Lord, you have been anointed here to bring us this good news. Why? Because of the the shedding of your blood. The good news is real today because of the sacrifice you made, Lord. Help us to quit playing games with our sin and turn to you as our only hope. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to sing now in response to the gospel preached. If you're here and you don't know Christ or you've been playing games with your sin or you've been playing church, today's the day to stop. Today is the day to be called to the good news that Jesus brings, to be called to be cleansed by the blood. Stop trying to fix your sin on your own and turn to the only person who can fix your sin forever. I'll be in the back to receive you as we sing. Please stand.